0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: San Diego Unified implements a vaccine mandate.
0: We've
2: had to move forward with what we think is the right policy based on science.
1: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The head of the San Diego Housing Commission resigns, and we talk Russia and our own democracy with New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks.
3: And so there are some polls that have shown shown in the Republican Party that Vladimir Putin is more popular than Joe Biden. And so that is a, a sign of weakness that we'll have to keep an eye on.
1: Plus, a new program teaching kids about the culinary arts. That's ahead on midday edition. Starting in June, all students age 16 and over in the San Diego Unified School District will be required to be vaccinated for COVID-19. San Diego Unified Board of Education voted unanimously Tuesday night to enforce its vaccine mandate. Uh, Joining me to talk about the decision is Richard Barrera, who sits on the school board.
2: Richard, welcome. Thanks so much, Jade.
1: So Richard, according to the district, about 80% of San Diego's unified students uh, age 16 and up are already fully vaccinated. What would this mandate achieve?
2: Well, to get to that other 20%, which is very important, uh, we think the mandate is critical. As we saw in our district with our mandate for employees to to be vaccinated, and as we've seen with other vaccine mandates in other places around the country, it really is that final 10-20% that the mandate is successful at reaching. And so, you know, we don't want to continue to have students uh, in our district uh, who are eligible for the vaccine, especially when that vaccine has been fully approved by the FDA, to continue coming to school every day because what that does is it not only puts those unvaccinated students at risk, but it also puts all students and all staff who those unvaccinated students are in contact with at risk. And it creates the potential for destabilization of our schools, like we've just seen with the Omicron surge uh, in January and early February. So, you know, what we consistently hear from public health experts is that there are many strategies that are important in mitigating the spread of the virus on school campuses, but the most important strategy is to increase vaccination rates.
1: And what medical advice did the district receive supporting this mandate?
2: Yeah, so we have been guided, as you know, Jade, since the beginning of the pandemic by a team of public health experts, doctors, epidemiologists at UC San Diego. And our own district physician, Dr. Howard Terrace, he regularly consults with that team of experts at UCSD. And so when we first adopted our vaccine mandate in late September, we had unanimous consensus from that team of UCSD experts that uh, moving to a vaccine mandate would not only be effective at increasing uh, vaccination rates on our campuses, but that doing so, that increasing vaccination rates is the most important strategy in containing the spread of the virus at school.
1: So now why is the district waiting until June then to implement the mandate?
2: So unfortunately, we had a couple of lawsuits that um, at one point blocked our ability to move forward and implement our mandate. Our goal was to implement the mandate at the semester break in late January, which is just it's a much better time uh, to institute something like a mandate because what happens, of course, with the vaccine mandate is students who are not in compliance need to be enrolled in our online program, our virtual academy, and then we need to have enough teachers in that online program to be able to work with those students. So you don't wanna be moving students and teachers out of uh, their schools and into the online program once the semester has begun. Those uh, lawsuits delayed our ability to implement our mandate uh, at the beginning of the spring semester, so now we're looking at the beginning of our summer program as well as our enrollment in fall to implement this uh, vaccine mandate.
1: And the vaccine requirement will, however, go into effect earlier for students playing sports or doing extracurricular activities in the fall. Tell us about the timeline for students to get vaccinated.
2: Yeah, there are three uh, key dates. So the first is uh, to participate in our summer programs, which, you know, as we know, last year we expanded pretty dramatically our summer program. So we had about 30,000 students in our district participate in summer programs last year. We're hoping for at least that number or even more this year. But in order to participate in our summer programs, students in that 16 plus range Uh, will need to get their first shot at the beginning of the summer program uh, within the first week. And then, uh, you know, we'll need to follow up uh, getting their second shot within uh, three weeks after that. So that's for students in our summer program. Then for, as you said, Jade, for students who are participating in fall sports or extracurriculars, when those first practices begin, which generally are a few weeks before the beginning of the school year, Again, in that first week of practice, uh, 16 and older students are going to need to get their first shot and then they're going to need to follow up uh, and get their second shot at the appropriate time. And then when the fall semester begins in late August, again, within that first week, any unvaccinated students 16 plus will need to get their first shot and then will need to follow up a few weeks later and get their second shot.
1: The district's vaccine mandate had been challenged in court, and just last week, the Supreme Court declined to issue an emergency order blocking the vaccine mandate, saying that there's no mandate to block. Uh, But now there is. Attorneys representing families who sued the district indicated that they plan to go back to the Supreme Court to hear the case now that the mandate is official. What's your response to that, and what concern do you have that this mandate could be invalidated?
2: Well, you know, we've had to move forward with what we think is the right policy based on science and based on, you know, protecting the health and safety of our students and staff and, you know, the right policy to keep our students in school. And, of course, we've had to respond to these lawsuits and take these cases through the legal process. So, You know, the the cases are still going through the legal process. We have not had a final settlement um, at the uh, state level by the California Supreme Court. We've not had a final settlement yet by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. There's absolutely no guarantee that the United States Supreme Court would take up the case. Um, But, you know, as we go through the legal process, you know, before we get a final ruling, we have to press forward with what we believe is the right policy to protect our students and staff.
1: Do you anticipate expanding the mandate to all students when the vaccine is fully authorized for all ages?
2: Yes, our vaccine mandate policy actually does apply to all students who are eligible for receiving the vaccine once it's been fully approved by the FDA. So right now it's only students 16 and older that are in that group. We anticipate at some point uh, during this year that the uh, vaccine will be fully approved by the FDA for students 12 and older. And then at some point, you know, that group of students five and older Uh, we expect, you know, the uh, FDA to fully approve those vaccines. So once the vaccines have been fully approved for that age group, then our vaccine mandate policy goes into effect for those students as well.
1: And on Monday, the state is expected to make an announcement about masking in schools. If the mask mandate goes away, will San Diego Unified follow the state guidance or will the board implement its own mask mandate?
2: Well, we don't think the state mandate will just go away on Monday. What we think is likely to happen is that the state will outline kind of an off ramp strategy that looks at things like vaccination rates and case rates. Uh, So, you know, Jade, there was just a study that came out the other day from the Harvard uh, Chan School of Public Health, which basically does some modeling and says that if you're trying to prevent the spread of COVID at school, you have to look at the vaccination rates and the case rates, and depending on what those are at any point in time, you're likely to uh, see you know, the spread of the virus go up or down at school. So I think what we're gonna see is guidance from the State Department of Public Health on Monday. And I'm also very confident that what we will see is the states say that if districts want to continue based on their own conditions, Uh, with indoor mask requirements that they'll be able to do that. And so we will continue to look to our local experts at UCSD to help us make those decisions as we go forward about indoor mask requirements.
1: I've been speaking with San Diego Unified Board Trustee Richard Barrera. Richard, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jade.
5: San Diego Housing Commission CEO Rick Gentry announced his resignation Tuesday after 14 years on the job. Gentry has seen the commission's agenda and impact expand substantially under his leadership, and lately he's seen the commission come under increased scrutiny involving a pandemic hotel deal that has resulted in a city lawsuit. The San Diego City Council is now launching an effort to change the way the commission operates, and Gentry has chosen to step down. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Andrew Keats. Andrew, welcome to the program.
6: Maureen, thanks for having me.
5: Rick Gentry says he doesn't want personalities to get in the way of the City Council's efforts to change the Commission. Do you read more into the timing of his resignation than that?
6: I don't want to read too much into it, but I think his own version of events plainly makes clear that this is not coincidental, the, the timing with the reform discussions that are underway at the City Council. Now, he hastened to say that this was not because the city council has pushed to conduct his annual performance review, which they've never done before. He says that that's not the reason for this. So that's one situation that's going on right now that happened just a week ago. And then this week he re- he resigned. He wanted to say that that's not the reason for this, that the reason for this is those reform conversations. But I what I would say is that the council's push to review his performance is part of those reform conversations. That's all happening at once, and it's all happening at once based on the events of the last year or so.
5: Now, you've done a lot of reporting on the conflict of interest case that surrounds the commission's purchase of a Mission Valley hotel during the pandemic. Can you give us a brief 101 on that?
6: The capsule of that is that about this time a year ago, I got word that there was an internal investigation within the Housing Commission that had concluded that a broker that they hired uh, during the summer of 2020, who was supposed to help them purchase hotels to be converted into homelessness housing, uh, that they learned that broker had, after signing a deal with them to go be their broker, he made a a large investment in a company that owned one of the hotels that he then uh, initiated a, a purchase of on behalf of the housing commission. So they sign a deal with him. He goes out and makes a large investment in a company, and then he negotiates uh, the housing commission's purchase of that of a hotel from that company. Um, so the, that word trickles up through the housing commission. They conduct an internal investigation. Um, it was behind closed doors, uh, and they hadn't uh, alerted anybody, including the city council about it. Uh, and then uh, I um, uh, obtained some documents that outlined what they had found uh, which included that that broker had um, told two separate staffers in the housing commission about his investment and those staffers had had sort of confirmed to legal counsel that that they did know about it ahead of time Uh, and then from there there was a a series of problems including the lack of communication to the city council whether everything was handled appropriately what to do about the fact that two people knew about this Uh, whether these actions were criminal, whether they should be prosecuted, and then it eventually culminated in the city attorney bringing a lawsuit uh, against that broker.
5: Is the Housing Commission administration involved in the allegations against this broker in any way?
6: There's no direct implication that anybody at the Housing Commission is involved, except that two Housing Commission staffers did tell their legal counsel that they were told of the investment and that they didn't do anything about it particularly. Uh, And the broker has defended himself in the lawsuit by saying that he told some housing commission senior staff about the investment. Um, But no, there is no direct allegation that uh, that there was anything that they were involved or that they were uh, receiving any sort of financial uh, windfall on their own. It's more that they they didn't do anything.
5: How have city leaders reacted to the news of Rick Gentry's resignation?
6: Respectfully, they've commended him for his time in 14 years and and acknowledged, which which is true, that the Housing Commission's budget has nearly tripled under his watch. They've taken on many more responsibilities. When when Gentry came to the Housing Commission in 2008, the Housing Commission was a pretty straightforward entity. It uh, handled federal housing programs and it uh, doled out money that the city uh, collected for affordable housing uh, construction. That was it. Under him, they have taken on a significant role in the city's homeless resp- response. A bunch of homeless services programs uh, run through the housing commission, um, and so they've, um, you know, they they have placed a number of people from the streets into homes uh, during his time, and uh, the and that you know they the agency is now considerably bigger and more influential than it was 14 years ago when he took over, and and people have. Mostly just responded by acknowledging that and um, expressing their their interest in in conducting a a robust and and comprehensive search for a replacement
5: yeah and and I was going to ask you now, what comes next? Do the new city council reforms have to be in place before there's a search for a new housing commission CEO?
6: They don't have to be, you know, Gentry sort of on his own, uh, took the liberty to say that that probably should happen, that, you know, you should do the the reforms before you select a replacement. Because who knows, maybe you change the agency such that you that 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 would change what would be an appropriate applicant. So uh, I think there's some it makes sense to think of it that way. Uh, but they wouldn't they don't necessarily have to to follow that that logic. Um, I think these sorts of replacements take a while, so there will probably be a, a temporary uh, uh, d- executive and then and then eventually you know sort of an interim and then a, an eventual successor. Um, and the other thing is we don't really know how extensive the reforms that the city council is going to pursue will end up being they have a laundry list of things that they're gonna consider. Some are very minor, very procedural um, sort of things about like what is allowed to happen uh, in closed session and and who's allowed to be involved in closed session and whether the city council or the housing commission's board gets to to be involved. You could change those things without really having any sort of influence on who should be the next CEO. But they also have discussed maybe they should uh, get rid of homelessness uh, services as something that the Housing Commission handles, maybe that should be something that the city handles, that, you know, the the, the decisions there, I think, would heavily influence the type of person you would hire into that job. Um, so it, I, part of this be, it comes down to how significant the City Council intends to reform this agency in the first place.
5: I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Andrew Keats. Andrew, thank you very much.
4: Maureen, thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: The 27th Annual Writer's Symposium by the Sea continues in Point Loma today, featuring an interview with politics and culture writer and New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks, who joins me now. David, welcome to the program.
3: It's good to be with you.
1: So I know you're here for the Writers' Symposium, but I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to really ask about the latest news of Russia's tension with Ukraine, which President Biden referred to yesterday as the beginning of an invasion. Here's some more of what he had to say in his remarks yesterday.
0: When all is said and done, we're going to judge Russia by its actions, not its words. And whatever Russia does next... We're ready to respond with unity, clarity, and conviction.
1: Though there does seem to be some political unity across the aisle, there are also some who seem to admire Putin's actions. In an interview released yesterday, former President Trump seemed to almost compliment Putin, calling Putin's latest moves genius and very savvy. Uh, Do you feel sentiments like those will undermine the U.S.'s diplomatic efforts during this crucial time?
3: Uh, Yes, I I covered the independence of Ukraine back in the 90s when they became an independent country. And one thing that struck me so powerfully back then is they really wanted to join the West. And not only the people of Ukrainian ethnicity, but also the Russian ethnicity. They, for the last several decades, they've wanted to be a Western nation. As a free nation, they should be able to decide what they want to do with their country. And so this assault by Putin is an assault on the liberal order. And I think the West has done pretty impressive job in unifying and responding as one. I think in general, the American politics and American politicians have done a pretty impressive job as responding as one. But there are a couple groups that have not, and they're sort of outliers right now. On the left, I think there are some people who see American action as sort of imperialism and American empire and that sort of thing. But on the right, there's a significant number of people like Donald Trump, like Tucker Carlson, who look at Vladimir Putin, And they see a fellow conservative nationalist. They see a strong manly man. They see a guy who at least pretends to defend religion. They see a guy who pretends to defend national sovereignty against the globalists. And so there are some polls that have shown shown in the Republican Party that Vladimir Putin is more popular than Joe Biden. Uh, And so that is a a sign of weakness that we'll have to keep an eye on. Hmm.
1: In your most recent column in The New York Times, you write that uh, democracy is not natural it is an artificial accomplishment that takes enormous work what is the important work most needed today
3: well to learn how to talk to each other among other things to know that other people have a piece of the truth that most of politics is a competition between partial truths and to recognize that the other side probably has a point and to recognize that we're pretty much tribal creatures and if you get a leader telling trying to divide the world into the good us and the bad them we're going to fall for that and history is filled with wars tyrannies, and authoritarian dictators who've played on that.
1: Mm. So how healthy do you think our democracy is today compared to other times in our nation's history?
3: Uh, The worst shape of my lifetime, uh, that's for sure. Uh, You know, the one thing I look at is social trust. Do we trust each other? A generation ago, if you asked Americans, do you trust your neighbors? They said 60% said, yeah, my people around me are kind of trustworthy. Now, if you ask those people, only 30% say my neighbors are trustworthy, and only 19% of millennial and Gen Z. And so a lot of people look around the world, and they've felt betrayed. They've felt people have not been trustworthy, not been honorable with them. And so if you go around life, imagine daily life, thinking that the people you meet are selfish and out to get you, you're going to have your walls up. You're going to band together in sort of defensive crouches. You're going to lash out. You're not going to do this sort of normal... Being with the stranger, that's just the stuff of politics, the diverse society. And so that is my ultimate fear about our about our system. It's not necessarily that Washington is screwed up, though God knows it is. It's that the basic levels of trusting each other, those have eroded away over decades.
1: You know, what does it mean even to be a liberal or conservative today? I mean, has it changed in recent years?
3: I think big time. The phrases liberalism and conservatism have A, gotten muddied. And the big distinction these days is between populist and non-populists. And you have left-wing populists, like we put Bernie Sanders, you have right-wing populists, we put Donald Trump in that category. And they basically see society as divided between the establishment, which is corrupt and oppressive, and the people who are getting the shaft. I confess I don't see politics that way. I, I think we live in a big, diverse country. Stupidity is our general problem, not malevolence. And we have to figure out ways to overcome our own individual stupidities by working together. Uh, and so to me, it's populist versus non-populist is often more important than left versus right. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, a- as you referred to, we are in the midst of a very tribal, polarized time in our society, making it, it hard to question our own sometimes entrenched views. In 2019, though, you wrote an op-ed where you talked about your transformation on the issue of reparations. That public expression of changing how you thought about something, how you evolved, seemed refreshing and rather rare. I'm curious if you agree with that and why you think we don't see more of that today.
3: You know, it happened to me. You know, I've always lived in cities, so I felt like I had a pretty diverse life. But, you know, I, I founded something called the Up Weave, the Social Fabric Project. We went around the country and we looked at people who were weaving community at the local level. And these are all kinds of Americans, rural Americans from Nebraska, African-Americans from Compton and Watts. And so I just got a daily reality bath where I was with people, people completely unlike myself on a much more daily basis. And when I was with the African-Americans all around the country, you know, I always knew it, you know, something intellectual, but you don't know it in your bones and in your heart, the level of anger and rage, the level of legitimate, righteous indignation and injustice. And I just settled in my bones, not in my head, that America has to make a gesture of respect, of respect toward people who have, have a long history of being shoved aside and, and, and screwed, basically. If we don't show respect, if we don't show it in some material way, it's just hard to turn the page, I conclude. So it wasn't like I read a book and got persuaded by an argument. I just had a broader set of experiences that changed the way I saw things.
1: In your most recent book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life, you explore the limits of the individual when it comes to living a fruitful life. What led you to write about this in today's day and age?
3: You know, I went through a hard time in my life in around 2013. That was like eight years ago now. But it was, you know, a time of personal doubt and, frankly, divorce and broken relationships. And like a lot of people, I was in the valley. You know, some people get broken by moments of suffering and some people get broken open. And I wanted to be in the latter category. And so I had to learn, even in the moments of pain, how to be more, even more vulnerable and to open up your heart even more, even though it hurts. And I had to do it in an American climate that's not always very forgiving. A couple of things I learned in that dark period. One, your problem is not going to be solved at the level of consciousness at which you created it. You have probably had some bad values that have led you into a bad place. The second thing I learned is when you're in a valley, you probably can't get yourself out. Somebody's got to reach down and help you out. And so I was lucky enough to have a group of people in Washington, D.C. who were some of them were like 17 years old. Some of them were like 60 year old and you know, formed a little community. And we had dinner together every week. We vacationed together. We celebrated holidays together. And we were just a little chosen family. They really lifted me out of that dark time. And so it was not an individual accomplishment. It was just being a member of a community.
1: Hmm. Do you think the book would have been different if it were written after the pandemic began?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I think the need for community has been really expanded, and the capacity to live in community has obviously been retracted. I have certainly felt that my introversion muscles have really been strengthened, and my extroversion muscles have been weakened. And I've certainly got to work hard to re-enter forms of community uh, that I've not been able to enter over the last few years.
1: I've been speaking with author, New York Times op-ed, columnist, and PBS contributor David Brooks. He will be appearing tonight at the Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University at 7 p.m. Tickets for the event can be purchased at pointloma.edu slash writers. Again, thank you so much for speaking with me today, David.
3: Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Imagine being a college student carrying a full schedule of classes, a part-time job, and also worrying about where your next meal will come from. Tens of thousands of students across the state don't have to imagine that situation. They are in it. A new analysis from the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley shows that more than 21,000 San Diego college students are on food stamps, known here as the CalFresh program. Across the state, the report found more than two 260,000 college students are using CalFresh to make ends meet. These are the first hard numbers to support evidence seen on campuses that many students struggle with food insecurity. Joining me to talk about this is Elise Deason-Ross. She is co-author of the report and a postdoctoral scholar at the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. And welcome, Elise.
7: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
5: In order to come up with these numbers, you had to access information from a number of different sources, and you finally linked it up in a new database. Why is it important to know how many California college students are using the CalFresh program?
7: You know, before this research, uh, we knew from other survey evidence that food insecurity was really widespread among college students. And CalFresh is this huge program is probably the, the biggest tool that we have to address, um, or at least to alleviate food insecurity. And we really didn't have any visibility into how many college students were actually able to access it. We've partnered with um, the community colleges and the University of California, in addition to the Student Aid Commission and the Department of Social Services. And they're all really eager to understand sort of the extent to which they're reaching this population, um, in large part because pretty much all these partners believe that the numbers of students actually on CalFresh is definitely below the number of students who are likely eligible for it. So there is you know, another hundreds of thousands of students that are eligible for and deserve these, these benefits, but are not actually getting them.
5: Give us an idea of what the new data is telling you about where CalFresh is being used most.
7: The new data shows that there's quite a bit of variation in terms of which students are enrolled in CalFresh. So around 10% of community college students are enrolled in this program, um, around 12% of UC undergrads and around 4% of UC graduate students. So there's quite a lot of variation across those segments. And then even within each segment, there's a lot of variation depending on the region or the college campus. So for example, In the UC system, um, graduate students at UC San Francisco have a really high rate of CalFresh participation. It's about a third. Um, And that really is an outlier. Most of the other campuses have uh, considerably lower rates. So there's just a ton of variation. And that's likely due to a number of factors. It's in part due to the efforts on campuses to enroll these students, but it also has to do with the varying levels of eligibility and need in these various areas.
5: Now, knowing the number of students currently on CalFresh doesn't tell you how many students need the program and could qualify. Your lab estimates that one in three college students face food insecurity. So do we know what's keeping more students from getting on the
7: program? For one thing, it's very complicated uh, for students to understand whether or not they are eligible for this program. And that's in large part because the policies that define eligibility for college students are extraordinarily complex. So, you know, it's to for the general public to access CalFresh, you have to uh, fulfill a couple criteria. But if you're a college student, you have to fulfill those criteria and more. So it's objectively more difficult and more complicated for college students to determine that they're eligible for these benefits. And a lot of times the information that they receive, you know, if they're looking online or even on campus can be confusing or can conflict with each other. And it's just not a straightforward thing for students to know ahead of time, oh, I'll be eligible for this. On top of that, there's a lot of barriers that uh, students face not related to eligibility. So there's quite a lot of stigma and even fear around CalFresh enrollment. A lot of students um, think that you know they'll feel embarrassed to use their uh, EBT card at the grocery store, or they're concerned about all the questions that the application asked about them and their family, um, particularly students who are um, in a mixed status has- household where maybe some of Their household members um, are immigrants are often concerned about sharing a lot of information with the government, even though they are still eligible for this program.
5: Can you share with us some of the things that you've heard from students about why they aren't getting the food assistance they're eligible for?
7: Yeah, definitely. So one of the key ones was just sort of this confusion about eligibility. Um, For example, there is one UC student That said, I looked at the county website and I could not find eligibility information for college students. I had no idea if I was eligible. I gave up on applying on that occasion. And that seems to be a common theme. Um, Another common theme was kind of like I mentioned before, this concern about all the information the application asked for. So one community college student said, I was not sure why I was being asked for my parents' info. The food I obtain with these benefits is for me, not for them and that can come up a lot because the way the rules work is that if you are under 21 and living with your parents, your parents' income factors into your eligibility, even if you're sort of covering all your grocery costs on your own.
5: Well, now that you have this data on the number of college students accessing CalFresh, how will you use it?
7: You really need the eligibility to to fully understand these enrollment numbers. So we're going to be uh, estimating CalFresh likely eligibility using financial data that we have from students from the Student Aid Commission for the most part. So again, this big data linkage we were able to Um, put together enables us to do that kind of research. And from that, we're going to be able to understand which groups are really being underserved and could use more targeted outreach and interventions to get them, um, you know, the benefits that they need. And The exciting thing is because we have this partnership with these agencies, um, we can actually work with them to pilot some strategies and interventions to increase uh, enrollment among these groups, particularly the ones where eligibility really exceeds actual enrollment. And then we can work with them to measure whether or not these, you know, small pilots and interventions are successful, and hopefully we can scale those efforts up. I've been
5: speaking with Elise Deeson Ross. She is co author of the report on how many California college students are using the CalFresh program. She's also a postdoctoral scholar at the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much, Elise.
7: Thank you.
5: Not far from downtown San Diego, in the heart of Barrio Logan, there are students learning to cook in an unconventional culinary classroom. It's part of the new California Culinary Arts Institute for Adults. But KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez shows us how children are now the special ingredient in this community of learning.
8: 11-year-old Carlos Sandoval is a chef in the making. He can do the entree right now. His mentor is executive chef instructor Rob Zardkuhi, who is also the director and founder of the new California Culinary Arts Institute. In the common chaos of a commercial kitchen, Carlos has learned his lessons well.
9: When you're plating something, you have to be, like, organized. You don't just put the food on the plate. You have to be very...
8: This 6th grade student spends at least 10 hours a weekend plating and learning the art of cooking in a 6-week program now catering to kids ages 10 to 16. During the week, the school has adults working on cooking and baking certifications, which happens to include Carlos's mother, Angelica. But it's his father who inspired him most.
9: He always wanted to be a chef one day, and then he didn't have that opportunity be a chef. So I want to accomplish his dreams as mine. You're going to lean the meat against the potato.
8: Chef Zardkuhi is an immigrant from Iran by way of Spain. He's been cooking since he was six years old. His is
9: not only a culinary story, it's a love story too. Every time that my mother cooked I look first for the leftovers and I wanted to eat the leftovers because I appreciated for what she had done. And I'm going to turn it on for you and go. Danica Matorina is almost 10 years old. You have to put um, a little bit of fire on it and it turns like brown.
8: She's making creme brulee on her first day. She tells us her home cooking includes pancakes, cookies and tortillas, among many other talents. (laughs) Danica dances too while living with a diagnosis on the autism spectrum which only makes her dreams to become a chef that much more exceptional.
9: I want to have a restaurant. I want to make my own foods and desserts. The chef and his team of instructors are here to educate and cultivate young cooks. They want to be proud and they want their parents to be proud of it. It is good for them to teach them how to eat healthier rather than uh, fast foods. The new Culinary Institute is in the heart of Barrio Logan, a
8: neighbor to culture and the crisis of homelessness. The chef plans for scholarships to include homeless students, and he wants to hire those in need to staff an outdoor patio restaurant with all proceeds going to homeless programs and other charities.
9: When ability comes in, responsibility should kick in as well. If God made me available to have This is cool. I don't want to be the only one who gets the benefit. It'd be nice to learn how to cook other things aside from just eggs. Fourteen-year-old Joshua Mesa is more comfortable chopping boards than food.
8: He's successful at mixed martial arts and now steps out of his comfort zone to try his skills in a kitchen.
7: I think cooking is a way we can express ourselves and a way to get to know a lot of people and without even having to use or learn another language. Cooking is just kind of a universal thing we all know and all do.
8: Cooking with love is also universal. Carlos puts it this way.
9: By the way we make it is kind of like love. Like you give somebody a hug, they love it. You give somebody food, they love it. Like student, like chef. Once you touch a food, and you touch this food with a passion to care for someone, to give with someone, uh, because you love that someone, Uh, It tastes different.
8: That's a delicious recipe for love and learning. M.G. Perez, KPBS News.
5: Joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome. Hello. Can you describe what it's like inside the California Culinary Arts Institute while the kids are learning to cook?
8: Well, I would like to tell you that it's magical and beautiful, um, but it's a working kitchen. So if you can imagine uh, several kids in a working kitchen, learning, making mistakes, creating wonderful food, that's what it's like. And as far as smells go, definitely lots to uh, smell and uh, enjoy and eventually eat.
5: Is this culinary training part of the student's school curriculum, or is this something that they pursue on their own?
8: It is not uh, part of a school curriculum. This is something that uh, the the institute decided to start uh, in order to try to educate young people about healthier eating, believe it or not. Uh, And uh, so they are doing it uh, as an extracurricular activity and because they love it.
5: And how much does it cost?
8: The price tag for tuition is $1,200, that is full six weeks, uh, which works out to about 60 hours in total, and all ingredients, tools, and all of that are provided. So the price is steep, uh, but the uh, school is willing to work with uh, students and parents in getting them enrolled in the program.
5: Now, as your report points out, this is a labor of love for the students and instructors. But I was thinking about it, it can also be dangerous to have kids around knives and hot stoves. How are the children supervised during their cooking classes?
8: We're talking about children ages 10 to 16, so uh, consider what they might uh, be like as far as responsibility goes. But interesting, week one, day one, first lesson, knife skills. Uh, Maureen. So they learn about sharpening knives, safety, cutting skills, uh, and various uh, other ways of using and uh, storing knives. So it's really the first uh, thing they learn. And there are adults uh, throughout uh, their experience that are there to support and help them.
5: Now, besides learning valuable cooking skills, Do the kids get any kind of credit or certificate for completing the training?
8: Absolutely. Uh, As far as credit, uh, it would not be applied to a school program, but they are recognized uh, for their accomplishment at the end of the six weeks. And it is quite an accomplishment because they are learning to cook. This is not just peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. These are actual uh, entrees and uh, they also bake and so there's lots to learn.
5: Now, during the week, the Institute offers cooking classes and programs for adults. Are those classes for
8: beginners or for people already in the food prep industry? Both. Uh, If you are looking to be certified so that you can get a, a job in a restaurant, for instance, the certification program is there for you. If you are someone who just wants to learn to cook or learn to cook better, maybe host parties and have friends come over. Uh, There are opportunities and programs for the casual cook as well.
5: MG, tell us more about the man in charge of the Culinary Arts Institute, Zorab Zardhui. It sounds like he has big plans for the Institute and the
8: surrounding neighborhood. He is quite a character. Uh, He is a chef in every sense of the word. Uh, Quick story, he gave me a chef's hat before I left, and he taught me the proper way to wear it. I was wearing it where I looked like the Pope, and he said, no, you have to move it around. So he is invested. He is a man who has been cooking uh, since he was six years old. He's an immigrant from Iran, as I mentioned, and uh, he loves uh, what he does. And his plans are well beyond just teaching people to cook, both children and adults. The, uh, facility is located in the heart of Barrio Logan, uh, not but a block away from where many homeless people have set up tents and encampments. His plan is to incorporate some of those people, to bring them into his kitchen and teach them how to cook. So there is a greater good. There is an attempt to reach out to the community that he really has, uh, on his radar. The other thing he's planning to do is, uh, convert a patio area into an outdoor restaurant, and all of those proceeds will be donated back to homeless programs and other charities.
5: Now, what kinds of dishes are the kids at the Institute going to be able to prepare by the end of their six-week course?
8: Let me read you the menu. As I said, it's not peanut butter and jelly, that's for sure. Lasagna, spaghetti, fettuccine, alfredo, sushi, believe it or not. Uh, They learn how to, to roll California rolls and make miso soup. Uh, The day that we were there, Salisbury steak was on the menu, uh, but my favorite, uh, week five, they learned how to make fried chicken with uh, herbed roasted potatoes and mushroom sauce. So clearly, uh, this is quite a wide menu of opportunity for these young people to learn how to cook.
5: Now, MG, I'm assuming you took a bite or two while you were there. How did the food taste?
8: Maureen, you know me well. Uh, It was delicious, and I will admit to you that I tasted the creme brulee. It was not good for my girlish figure, and please don't tell my trainer, but it was delicious. Uh, Handmade, fresh fruit, I licked the bowl clean. How's that for an answer?
5: (laughs) I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you so much. Thank
8: you, Maureen.